The teaching this evening comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, just three short verses, verses 40, 44 excuse me, through 46, and it's two tiny parables that Jesus teaches in succession. They read like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Again, this is the second parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is God's word. That's it. Two short, tiny parables told in succession and the brilliance that Jesus is doing uh, by teaching those in succession. He's, he's very intentionally teaching two little stories that in some ways are very similar and yet they're also clearly distinct from one another. And I'll get to this distinction here in just a minute. But I want to do just a real quick review on what a parable is. He's teaching two parables here, two littlest parables you ever saw. What is a parable? Uh, some of you uh, with really good memories, we'll recall all the way back to summer when we did, one week we did just a, a lesson on what exactly are Christ's parables? What's the purpose of parables? And I said at that time that I'm sure many of you, uh, if you have a working definition of a parable, you might have the definition of it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Some of you have heard that before. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that it contains earthly elements that are common to all the listeners. Yes, in the sense that it has a spiritual goal attached to it and there's, so, there, there's spiritual truths expressed in it, but it, there's actually a completely other essential component to understanding a parable. A parable, actually, the, the Greek word for parable, some of you will recognize, it's parabola. And you math nerds are going to love this because if you hearken back to your geometry sophomore year days, one of the things you'll remember, the definition of a parable is what? A parable is a, an arc, a plot of points that creates an arc that on the other side of an axis of symmetry, it's perfectly mirrored, okay? So it's an arc that is plotted by points, plot points, and on the other side of the axis of symmetry, it looks exactly the same. It's a perfectly mirrored image. What Jesus then is teaching a parable is, is it has a physical truth, a truth that exists in this world. It's every story has a narrative arc with plot points attached to them. But what he's saying is on the other side of an access of symmetry, it's not just a physical truth. On the other side is a spiritual truth. But that spiritual truth that perfectly mirrors the physical truth and the plot points of it, uh, it's invisible to a lot of people. It's secret. It's hidden. In fact, what Jesus does in his parables, and one of the reasons that he uses parables in his teaching is he takes all of the greatness of God and all of the brilliance of God and all of the beauty and majesty of his teaching, and he says he intentionally embeds it in a teaching that, the spiritually speaking, is completely hidden, completely invisible to the non-believing, the proud, the greedy, the selfish, the hardened. But it's perfectly accessible, perfectly visible perfectly uh, easy to be accessed by young or old or rich or poor or intelligent or unintelligent if you approach it with humility and eyes of faith and repentant hearts. So what is the purpose of the two parables that he gives us tonight then? Well, here they go. Let me just recount the plot points real quickly. The first one goes like this. It's the parable of hidden treasure. 
And what we find is there's a man who's out working in a field and he stumbles across some buried treasure. Now, you don't just stumble across uh, treasure that's just sitting on the field. It's buried in the field, which means that in order to get to the treasure, he has to work the field. Now, if you work a field, historically, that means in your whole realm of social, uh, socioeconomic status, if you're working fields, it probably means you're on the lower run of, of people of means, right? And so he's probably a low-income field worker who's working in the field and comes across this hidden treasure. To us today, that sounds a little insane because we don't believe in things like buried treasure anymore. But if you read Bible commentators, uh, you'll find that in the ancient world, of course there's things like this. Why? You don't have a sophisticated banking system. You don't have uh, insurance, you know, FDIC insured banking, you know, corporate uh, economic uh, things that hold all of your money together and secure your, your finances. It was much more perilous financially. So it wasn't at all uncommon. In fact, I came across a couple different commentators that said one of the common practices in the ancient world is for people of means to divide their wealth into thirds. And they would take a third that they would keep on their person for things like business transactions when they traveled. A third of their wealth they might invest in uh, precious metals or precious stones that they know hold their value. So things like diamonds and gold and silver and stuff. Even today, people invest in that stuff because they know it can retain value. And then the other third of their wealth they might have very well sunk deep into the ground in an undisclosed location so that nobody could get to it. Um, so it, it's, it's not at all, I mean, it, it seems bizarre to us, but it's not at all uncommon in the ancient world. And furthermore, what's also not uncommon is the idea that it might be left there. Why is that? Because people died a lot more frequently in the ancient world at much younger ages. It wasn't that surprising when someone just died. Uh, if they went on a business trip, that was a treacherous kind of thing. Remember, in the ancient world, you don't have health care. In the ancient world, you have things like marauding tribes that will gladly take all your money and maybe even kill you in the process. Uh, today, it's, it, it's, it boggles the mind how sophisticated things like business trips are today. I can schedule a trip and know what time I will arrive to the minute on the other side of the country for my meeting, right? That's crazy. In the ancient world, it's I'm going away for a while. I might be gone for a couple days, I might be gone for a couple months, I might be gone for, who knows, years it could be, or I might not come back if this doesn't go well. And therefore what ends up happening is you have people of means who sometimes die and guess what happens with their stuff? It's just buried there in the ground. And so somebody who's working the field might stumble upon it. Now, further evidence that this guy is probably of low socioeconomic status is the fact that in order to procure this one simple single field, what does he have to do? He's got to liquidate all of his assets. He has to sell. Now, if you have to sell everything in your life in order to get one field, it probably means that you don't have a whole lot of stuff. He gladly does it. He gladly spends all of it and sells all of it because he knows that whatever is buried there in that field is infinitely more valuable than anything else that he has in his life. That's the first story. Second story is similar but different. It's the pearl of great price parable. Uh, this one, the main character, is a pearl merchant. And you know what? Pearls, they're, they're one of those things that I said have always historically sort of retained their value. Pearls have always been perceived as pretty highly valuable. Uh, in fact, some of you might even know this little piece of trivia that the most expensive pearl in the world today is, it's called the La Peregrina. It supposedly has been handed down for centuries in British and Spanish and French royalty. And most recently it was famous because it was put into a necklace for... Elizabeth Taylor in 2011. And at the time it was valued at $12 million. 
So most expensive pearl in the world. Uh, supposedly Cleopatra back in the day maybe had a pearl that was worth or estimated in the billions of dollars. And my point is this. If you're the type of person that buys and sells really expensive things, that usually says that you're also the kind of person, there aren't a whole lot of poor people who are really good in finance, right? So generally speaking, if you're somebody who does, sells really expensive things, that means you're probably somebody of pretty significant means yourself. And so the pearl merchant is a fairly wealthy individual. And he's out searching uh, to make some transactions and to find some good deals. And he finds some pearl somewhere out there, maybe in a market, maybe wherever, that is of superlative value that he's willing to sell off every other thing that he has, every other pearl that he owns, in order to get this one pearl. Okay, so what's the commonality and the difference between these two stories? Well, it's interesting because, again, you can kind of see the commonality uh, even through the difference. So the difference contrasts things enough to, to bring out the, the interesting nature of the commonality. The difference between the two is, we already established, you have in the first story a field worker who's probably fairly poor. In the second story, you have a pearl merchant who's probably fairly rich. In the first story, you have a guy who's working uh, through a field and he's oblivious to how expensive and how much treasure is actually underneath him until he, gets, he comes across it. He stumbles upon it. He wasn't looking for it, but he finds it and it rocks his world. The pearl merchant is actually seeking something highly valuable when he's out there. And yet he's still blown away by the value of the thing that he actually finds to such an extent that he's again willing to liquidate all his assets in order to get it. And so what Jesus seems to be suggesting in the contrast between these two things is what? Every single human being, including every single person in this room, is at a different spot in their spiritual journey. Some are young, some are old, some are rich, some are poor. Some are actively seeking, and some are just kind of going through life fairly obliviously and maybe minding their own business and blissfully and whatever. But when you stumble upon the truth that is really truth, when you actually see the value of the treasure, when you actually see the value of the pearl, it rocks your world in such a way that you're ready to get rid of everything else in order to have it. And that gets us to the, the commonalities between the two. Uh, let me just highlight three. There's probably more than three, but I'll give you three. Uh, the first point of commonality is uh, what? Both of these guys see something that the rest of the world doesn't see. Both of these guys recognize a value in something the rest of the world is, is blind to. Now, the first guy literally has something buried in the ground, and we're not told anybody else is around and, and you know, whatever else. But the fact remains, he sees a value that the rest of the world is walking by every day and missing. And furthermore, the pearl merchant, same thing. Now, he's actually seen something that other people are probably looking at in the market, and yet because he's got a keen, trained eye as a pearl merchant, he can see the unique value of something and assess it as more than everybody else sees it as, but he's willing to sell off all the other pearls in order to get this one. If it was that valuable, whoever is selling it wouldn't have sold it had they seen the value. Both of these guys recognize a value in some kind of treasure that the rest of the world cannot see. Secondly, point of commonality, both of these guys are willing to liquidate all their assets in order to get the treasure. In other words, it's interesting, but both, it's not just that both of these guys invest a lot of money, it's that they get rid of everything else in order to get this one thing. Um, whatever this treasure is, you can't get it halfway. You can't just dip your toes into the water of trying to get this, you can't click maybe on the evite of this treasure. You have got to commit, you maybe people out there. You've got to, you, 
you, you have to go all the way in or all the way out, but you cannot ride the fence, whatever this treasure is. See? And the third point of commonality between the two, both of them, before they sell it, after they assess the value, and after they sell it, in both cases, they recognize that the value is worth it. Neither of them is disappointed. Both of them are entirely satisfied. And it's actually very interesting that the first guy, it says, it says only in the first parable that the guy sells all his stuff joyfully. Which, by the way, is the proper flow of the gospel. It's not that we do stuff and then uh, get something and then we're joyful. It's that we get something first, are joyful, and then, and then do stuff and, and willingly let go of stuff. But it doesn't say that about the second guy. Uh, in other words, we actually touched on materialistic stuff a couple weeks ago and we talked about KonMari and, and all those kinds of things and worldly materialism and how that can have kind of a power and a uh, mastery over us, the things of this world. It can cast a spell over us. You notice the guy who has a lot of stuff, when he sells all of his stuff, he's not super joyful about it. He's probably a little bit on edge to get rid of all his stuff. The guy who doesn't have a whole lot of stuff, he joyfully gets rid of all of it because he knows he doesn't have much in the first place. What's the point? If you haven't figured it out yet, the point of the parable is this. The treasure, the pearl, it's the kingdom of God. More specifically, it's the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is trying to tell us through these two parables, there is nothing in this world that is worth more than me. Not even close. Everything in this world put together is worth losing, is worth forsaking, is worth liquidating in order to simply receive me. And honestly, to the degree that you recognize the value inherent in Jesus Christ, it will proportionately give you joy in letting go of the things of this world. That's the point. Um, by the way, I do want to put one kind of uh, point of, one caveat here and one clarification. Jesus is not at all saying, you, know, you always have to be careful when teaching parables. Uh, you have to interpret parables against the backdrop of all of Scripture. You have to interpret parables according to the context of the people that Jesus is speaking it to. You've got to be careful not to press too many details. and You've got to certainly be careful not to press them in the wrong direction. Uh, this parable, Jesus is not teaching us that in order to gain the kingdom of heaven, if the pearl and the treasure is the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying uh, you have to sell and earn and deserve and purchase the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that we're doing that. In fact, the kingdom of heaven does have to be purchased, but you and I aren't capable enough and rich enough to actually purchase it. The only thing that can purchase the kingdom of heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ, and then he has to gift it to us. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's gifted to you. So these parables do not teach you how to merit the kingdom of God. What they do absolutely teach you is how you receive the kingdom of God. You can only receive the kingdom of God through a faith that values Jesus more than anything else in life. See? Now, what does this mean? Let's apply it. Um, again, the summary is what? The summary is nothing in life is more valuable than Jesus. Everything in this world is worth sacrificing if it stands in the way of receiving Jesus Christ. And finally, we're going to, when we see Jesus face to face and receive him that way, it is going to bring about ultimate cosmic eternal joy. But even in this lifetime, the only way and the best way to experience truly healthy joy is still in the pursuit of receiving Jesus. Now, 
there's, there's a, honestly a hundred different directions that we could go with how you apply this account. I'm going to give you one application. There's going to be three manifestations of it, but I'm going to give you one application here today. You know what Jesus is teaching us? One way to apply this? These parables teach us that God always buries treasure in unexpected places. God hides his treasure in the ordinary of life. It's his basic MO. Uh, and let me give you three manifestations of that. This is fully, thoroughly uh, scriptural. Number one, God hides his treasure in ordinary people. Um, a couple months ago, Lenny Hansen, one of our members, lent to me a CD uh, set for C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. And uh, she knows I love uh, C.S. Lewis. And I haven't read Screw Tape Letters for a good five years or so. So I, I listen to it in my car on the way to and from work every day. And, you know, every time I, I read or listen to Lewis, there's always new fascinating insights. But if you don't know what Screw Tape Letters is, it is a fictional tale of a senior level high ranking demon who is trying to advise a low-level rookie apprentice demon. And the, the advisor demon is teaching the advisee how you pull people away from faith and love in Jesus Christ. And in the second chapter, one of the things that uh, screw tape is the name of the senior advisor and Wormwood is the name of the, the, the junior, you know, the, the mentee. And one of the things that Screwtape says to Wormwood is if you find a fledgling Christian, an immature Christian, a Christian who is not very deep in their faith, the best way to discourage them, the best way to disparage them is to what? Here's what he says. He says, work hard then on the disappointment or the anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient, this patient during his first few weeks as a churchman or churchwoman. So early on in their faith. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots in church that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. You understand what he's saying? The demon is saying if you want to pull an immature Christian away from God, just help that immature Christian see how incredibly unspectacular God's church is how terribly ordinary all the people are. Man, that uh, preaching sure could use some polishing. And he sure could use some better insights. And man, wouldn't I like every time I sung a hymn verse, uh, wouldn't I like it to be a little catchier and a little bit more inspirational? And man, those people, whew, uh, Shouldn't, if they're really God's people, shouldn't their lives be a little bit purer? And shouldn't they be a little bit more attractive? And shouldn't they be a little bit more successful? And they seem just so terribly ordinary and unimpressive and unspectacular. Um, you see what he's saying here? Can God possibly live in such ordinariness is what he's saying. Their, their breath smells just as bad as everybody else's. Their clothes are just as unstylish as everybody else's. Uh, their problems and their skill sets are just as ordinary as everybody else's. Their stories are just seemingly as boring as everybody else's. Is it possible that God actually lives and operates here? Um, now tell me, you haven't thought that way a little bit yourself. Is God's presence actually exist in this midst and in this person and is he working on me right now? It doesn't necessarily feel like it. But isn't that kind of the way that God sort of works? Is it possible that God adopts children into his family 
by using regular plain old tap water. Does it require magic water? Does it require special holy water? Should we at least not have a fountain or something like that? Or can the adoption just take place through regular ordinary water? Is it possible that God himself can exist in just a tiny little piece of bread and a little sip of wine? Is it possible that God can change the entire trajectory of my eternal life simply by giving me a message through an ancient book that was written by primitive people that don't even understand modern science? Is it possible that God can actually embrace me when I'm hugged by another flawed, sinful human being who happens to be a Christian? Is that a way that God can can love me and hug me? Now listen, I get it. I know you want it to be a little bit more spectacular. I sometimes instinctively do too. I know you want to walk on water and I know you want that every song and every verse that you sing is like an out-of-body experience of ecstasy and your spirit rejoicing. And I know you want sometimes a preacher who will only give you a message who is maybe five minutes long and it's a little piece of self-help and it's going to directly address whatever it is that is the problem that I'm facing in my life right now and it's going to fix all my problems just like that. I'm telling you that's not how God works. God does not bury treasure in treasure chests in palaces He buries treasure deep in plain old ordinary fields. And if you're not there yet and you haven't experienced that treasure, uh, but you know it's there because Jesus says it's buried there, then instead of just getting up and leaving and moving on, just dig deeper. This world operates on externals and the world functions in superficialities. And I think we all you know, sort of ordinary, uh, sort of understand that. Uh, but what Jesus is telling us here is if God operates in ordinary people and through ordinary people, honestly, just don't walk by ordinary people. <laughs> don't just dismiss or write off unimpressive seeming people. God buries treasures in the ordinary, including his ordinary people. Uh, It gives all of us value and it's good reason to value each other person who's sitting next to us. Not only does God uh, work through ordinary people, but our lesson also, I think one of the applications is God works through an ordinary message. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, one of the things that he says, (laughs) it's actually kind of insulting. And he says, when God chose you, you Corinthians, he didn't choose the wise and learned. He didn't choose the impressive. He didn't choose the attractive. He chose the lowly and the humbled and the meek. And he said he did it in order to shame the proud and the self-sufficient. And God not only does that with people, he does that through his message. Because in the same way that the world might look at the Corinthians or look at us and see us to be relatively ordinary and unspectacular, from the worldly perspective, the gospel message, the message of the cross is also painfully ordinary. In fact, the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1, some of you know, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. It's so ordinary. Oh, that can't be worth anything. In fact, you know what's really interesting? I've only started to pick this up after years of doing ministry now, but one of the interesting things for me, worth working particularly with a lot of young adults over the course of the years, is that most of the young adults I encounter can recite to me and regurgitate to me the basics of what the gospel message is. And they they know that God sent Jesus, God's son, into the world to die, to take away the sins of the world, and that because Jesus did that, that means I get to live forever in heaven. Uh, Most young adults, 
with some kind of Christian background can give me something like that. And yet I'm less confident that most of them also fully believe it. Why? Because there's, there's almost no sense of amazement when they say it. It's, it seems very ordinary. They approach the gospel or relate to the gospel almost like an old ordinary field that they just walk by every day. And, um, you know, how unordinary should it actually be? Um, I, one of the things that I've told my men's group recently, I'll just share with you guys as well, that for the first 20, 22 years of my life, nothing in the Bible struck me as profound. Nothing was... Now, granted, I took a lot of Bible classes and I actually did pretty well on those Bible classes and I answered a lot of correct Bible answers. Uh, but nothing really struck me as particularly profound. Why? Because it was uh, routine and it was academic and by and large, it felt uh, mostly ordinary most of the time. And then one of the things that God did was he allowed me in the later part of my teen years and early 20s, he allowed me to experience a couple of life-changing depressions. And after I went through those, you know what I started to actually do on my own a little bit? I started to figure, well, okay, all, all bets are off and I'm at rock bottom. I actually started to open my Bible and dig a little bit. Here I am years later, I try not to ever let a day pass by where I don't open up God's word and dig into it. One of the things that I've shared with the guys in my men's group is that it's fascinating to me today. For the first 20, 22 years of my life, I didn't find a single thing that particularly struck me as profound. And now, barely three weeks to a month goes by where God doesn't knock me off my chair when I'm doing my daily devotion and say, how did you not know this? Or I say to myself, how did you not know this? In other words, the growth over the course of the years has not been like this steady growth like this. The growth has been a trajectory that almost kind of arcs up like this. And here's what I, I mean by this. Uh, some of you, throughout the course of your life, your level of Bible study and your engagement and your digging, has, you've gone about one or two shovelfuls deep. And you're saying, well, my life hasn't been changed. And my treasures, my, my coffers are not full with treasures. And, and I mean, treasure doesn't get buried three inches deep in the ground. A dog knows to bury a bone more than about six inches in the ground. So I'm pretty sure God doesn't bury treasures six inches in the ground. You have to keep digging. If you haven't experienced that joy, if you haven't experienced that freedom, if you haven't tasted that grace, what do you do? You know it's there. Don't just run off. Don't avoid it. Don't get discouraged when you've been shoveling for 30 minutes and don't dis dis discourage after two shovelfuls. Keep digging. The seemingly ordinary births the extraordinary if you know the right place to dig and you just keep digging. And that's my final point. Not only does God bring treasure in the ordinary uh, people, not only does he bring treasure in the ordinary message, he also, interestingly and beautifully, he brings treasure in an ordinary savior. Uh, we're moving into the Lenten season and we're going to read Isaiah 53 probably multiple times, the suffering servant chapter, and it's this prophecy in the Old Testament about a Messiah who's coming who is going to be painfully ordinary, so much so that the world is not going to be at all impressed when they look at him. And what do we find in Jesus? We find a guy who has an incredibly ordinary background, incredibly ordinary parents, incredibly ordinary upbringing. His, his best friends and his colleagues are painfully ordinary. 
Uh, we went through a couple weeks ago in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted out in the wilderness. Jesus does not get tempted by the glitzy, glamorous, shiny things of this world. When Satan tries to offer him all of the treasures of this world and all the palaces and all the power, and he doesn't take the bait. And yet, for all of his faithfulness, what does Jesus end up getting? He dies a death amongst ordinary criminals, and he's hanging there in the midst of a bunch of ordinary criminals. Ironic, right? Why does he choose to do that on his own? The perfect king buried himself in the ordinary so that we who have spent much of our lives feeling worthless, feeling unimpressive, feeling painfully ordinary can rest assured that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be eternally extraordinary, eternally impressive, eternally noteworthy because we are eternally treasured by God himself. That, I mean, you know how you use that? It's, it's, not, it's not even that Jesus, when he ran out of heaven to come and get us and he was liquidating all of his assets in the treasures of heaven, he did it not only just after he got us, he did it just with the thought of getting us. It didn't, not even everybody received it, but he paid for their sins too. He was so overjoyed at the idea of getting us to be members of his family. Do you understand how liberating that is? Do you know, do you know in this lifetime what that can do for your joy? You want to find joy when it feels like all the rest of your world is falling apart? You want to find joy even in losing the good things that you like in this life? Do you want to find joy despite all your sins and all your struggles and all of your, the insanity and the chaos of life? What do you do? You look at what you get entirely by grace and let it overwhelm your heart. Spiritual treasure it's buried in ordinary things. And the final thought then is don't forget if you feel ordinary, that means that God has buried spiritual treasure right inside of you. Don't you dare ever think you're just ordinary. Don't you ever treat anybody else as though they're just ordinary. God has placed his value and his treasure deep inside of them. And then we look at one another that way. Assume greatness in the ordinary. Trust the process. Trust the spiritual disciplines. Keep digging in the right place. Prioritize Jesus as the ultimate treasure and the pearl of great price. And you will not be disappointed. You will become joyful and you will become rich. Let's close with prayer. I'm going to use the words from verse 3 of the hymn we, we sang a moment ago. Satan, I defy thee. Death, I now decry thee. Fear, I bid thee cease. World, thou shalt not harm me, nor thy threats alarm me, while I sing of peace. God's great power guards every single hour. Earth and all its depths adore him. Silent, we now bow before him. Lord Jesus, make this true in each of our hearts this evening. In your name we pray. Amen.